Well, hello, brothers and sisters at Calvary Baptist Church in Ellensburg. Uh, I feel myself at a bit of a disadvantage addressing you virtually, uh, since we are separated by a continent, <laughs> you in the great Northwest and me here in the central Northeast uh, in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, the only thing I know about you, I've gleaned from your website, which is very nice, by the way, uh, but certainly a bit uh, limited in just understanding who I'm talking to. I do know quite a bit more about your lead pastor and his family, Stephen and Sarah, and their family, of course, are part of our family. Uh, Stephen has sworn me to secrecy on any embarrassing details from his childhood. And so, uh, Stephen, it was a great um, temptation, uh, but I have fought it off, and Lord willing, will not reveal anything that will harm your reputation among your flock. Uh, so you can you can rest at ease as you listen to this. Um, perhaps Stephen has told you I serve as the department uh, chair of the Bible and Theology Department at Lancaster Bible College, Capital Seminary and Graduate School. And on the weekends, Elaine, my wife, and I, we enjoy helping local churches that are in transition uh, between uh, pastors. And we've uh, been quite busy with that over the last few years. And uh, we, we come from a background of pastoral ministry. I was a seminary professor, seminary president for a number of years, and uh, very much enjoying this uh, season of ministry in our lives. And uh, thankful for this opportunity to share the Word of God with you here this morning, and particularly thankful to talk about the Psalms. And uh, excited to know that uh, Pastor Stephen's leading you through a study of the Psalms this summer. This morning, we're going to focus on Psalm 19, and I've entitled this psalm, Einstein's Answer. I want to begin with a, a quote from Albert Einstein himself expressing a frustration that he had as he was studying the created order over uh, his expansive career. He wrote this, What I see in nature is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only imperfectly, and that must fill a thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling which has nothing to do with mysticism. I think Einstein would describe followers of Christ like us as uh, involved in mysticism. In another place he wrote this, I see a pattern, but my imagination cannot picture the maker of that pattern. I see a clock, but I cannot envision the clockmaker. The human mind is unable to conceive of the four dimensions, so how can it possibly conceive of a God before whom a thousand years and a thousand dimensions are one? He crystallized this frustration in this particular comment. He said, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest our details. Well, if you had five minutes alone with uh, this frustrated Albert Einstein, I understand he's passed on, but for the sake of the illustration, you know, go with me. What might you say to him? I've thought about this some, and I think you could do no better than bring Albert Einstein to Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis called this possibly the greatest poem in the history of world literature. How's that for an accolade? But I like it for Einstein because it actually begins by describing the very problem that Einstein 
was struggling with. That in the first stanza of the psalm, the first six verses, we see this statement that God has revealed himself in the book, if you will, of creation, but only partially. Let me read the, the text here. Uh, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, in those verses, David is describing how creation is incessantly proclaiming, yet without words, in a voice that is pointing people to God's glory and his power. And yet, the problem here is that people created in God's image have misunderstood the message that creation is proclaiming. When David mentions the sun as part of this ongoing witness of creation, he may be taking a subtle swipe at uh, the idolaters in his generation surrounding him in all the nations, many of whom saw the sun as a god itself, the god of justice. Romans 1, Paul is echoing this as he says, you know, the problem here is people, instead of worshiping the creator, they've begun worshiping creation. It was true in David's day. And yet here he is saying, no, that son is not a god. That son is, is actually some finger work, some handiwork of our God, the true God. He spoke it into existence. And all of these elements of creation proclaiming this God's existence, his power, his unfathomable glory. And yet, it's been misunderstood. Perhaps no clearer than in uh, Einstein's statements himself. He said at one point, I do not believe in a personal God. And I have never denied this, but have expressed it clearly. If something is in me which can be called religious, then it is unbounded admiration for the structure of the world so far as our science can reveal it. And then this plaintive statement, so tragic. He says, we know nothing about God at all. All our knowledge is but the knowledge of schoolchildren, Possibly we shall know a little more than we do now, but the real nature of things, that we shall never know. Never. What a tragic acknowledgement of what these six verses in Psalm 19 actually make clear. The revelation of God in the book of creation is partial. It's shouting to us, but because of the fallenness of humanity, it's often misunderstood. And so, David goes on to say, there's a way in which God has more completely revealed himself, and that is in the giving of the Old Testament law. 
God has partially revealed himself in the book of creation, but more completely revealed himself in his word. Let's read verses 7 through 11 and listen for these um, couplets, these parallel statements that describe the law in uh, the most lofty of, of language. These six couplets describe uh, the beauty of God's revealed word to us, showing us much more about who this creator is, what he is like, and what he expects of us. Now, before I read the text, some folks have said there's such an abrupt transition here from talking about the book of creation and the sun and nothing hiding from its heat. And then David immediately starts talking about the Old Testament law. Some have even said, oh, there must be two authors. This is clumsily stitched together, you know, at a later time. No, not at all. There is a very uh, powerful connection here. As David, the old shepherd, uh, who had spent many days on the backside of the Palestinian desert uh, trying to hide himself from that scorching heat and light of the sun that he just talked about, he's now going to describe how the law of God is like a light and a lamp, searching out the, the inmost hiding places of every human soul. Let's read the verses, verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord, it's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired are they than gold, the most precious substance in David's day, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, the sweetest substance in David's day. And moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Well, in these lofty descriptions, David now changes his reference to God from the term God to the term Lord, the law of the Lord. It's the covenant name of God. These statements are a revelation of all that God expects, and he's revealed this to us in the giving of the Old Testament law. And it informs us how to live in right relationship with this covenant-keeping God. Uh, this uh, law refreshes our life, makes us wise, rejoices our heart, enlightens us, endures forever, and helps us to walk righteously. It's no wonder David said, the Old Testament law is, is more valuable than gold. It's, it's sweeter to our souls than honey because it tells us who God is, what he expects, and how to live in relationship with them. He says in verse 11, by them, the servants of God are warned. And yet there's a problem, isn't there? He says in verse 11, in keeping of them, there is great reward. And folks, there's the rub. Who can keep it? Who has kept God's law? David himself broke that law. 
James tells us in chapter 2 that whoever would keep the whole law but fail in even one point has become accountable for all of it. He's guilty of all. And so the psalm, the tension is building, right? God has revealed himself in the book of creation, but only partially. He has revealed himself more completely in the wondrous revelation of the Old Testament law, but any thinking person has to look at that law, consider their own life example in light of that revelation, and realize how far short we come. You know, thinking of all the unrest and difficulty that's going on in our nation right now, who among us can look at God's law that says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Here in the United States, I think we in the church, this is a time for personal reflection, for self-reflection, for transparency to say, you know what, there are injustices and wrongs in our society, uh, not that we have the responsibility to change society around us, but we are to be seeking peace and seeking to create shalom in all the realms of our influence. And uh, too many times the church on this issue of injustice in our world toward people of color, we've been in the shadows. We've been silent when we should have been speaking God's truth of the dignity and value of every human person. So Yes, this is a season of our lives where we feel our own failures, our own lack, our own um, inability to live up to the expectations of God's law summed up in that great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah, the uh, revelation of God in creation is one thing. The revelation of the Old Testament law is much more precise much more pointed and brings us to our true problem as humans created in God's image and yet separated from him by our sin. Who can keep that law? <laughs> in keeping, there is great reward. But I think David wants us to wrestle a bit with this question. Well, he brings us on then to the final stanza of the psalm. And you can hear him wrestling with his own failures here. But we're going to see in verses 12 to 14 that while God has partially revealed himself in creation and more completely revealed himself in the, the giving of his word, he has ultimately revealed himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, the only Redeemer. Dr. Ron Allen made this statement, the sweep of this psalm is stunning. It begins with the stars and then moves to the scriptures and finally sweeps to one's inmost soul. See what he means here in verses 12 to 13 as David talks about the law producing an awareness of who God is and producing a sensitivity to our failures and sins. He begins with his question in verse 12, who can discern his errors? And then a prayer, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Did you hear a progression there in David's description of our sinfulness as humans? He talks first of all about hidden faults, then presumptuous sins, then great transgression. Hidden faults are those sins that perhaps we're not even aware that we're committing, uh, sins that we are ignorant of, that uh, this is displeasing to the Lord. And, you know, I'm sure all of us could say yes in our, in our Christian experience, in our journey with the Lord. As we grow in Christ, the Spirit of God reveals uh, new areas of places where we're failing and failing to be like Christ. And so we need to change and grow and adjust by the power of the Spirit and that's, a, that's an ongoing process where the Spirit of God is revealing these things to us in our, in our lives as we study his word. Uh, but then there's another kind of sin that David talks about, and those are the, the high-handed, presumptuous sins, the, the ones that uh, we know are crossing boundaries that God has set up, and yet uh, we have a bent, a rebellious bent to go beyond them. And no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, there are still those types of failings in our lives, and the law produces a sensitivity to those things. Indeed, the law made, uh, made uh, uh, opportunity for people to offer sacrifice for those very kinds of sins. And then he talks about uh, the sins that have dominion as great transgression. These are life-dominating kinds of of sins. Uh, modern secularists might refer to these as addictions of various types, but I wonder if David doesn't have, as he talks about the great transgression here in verse 13, if he doesn't have in mind that sin of idolatry that he subtly referred to there in the first stanza, the people worshiping the sun, which is just a, hand, a part of God's handiwork, David's realizing that in his own life, there's this tendency toward replacing the creator God with something else, someone else that we give our affection and devotion and loyalty to and find the meaning of our lives in. Now, David is saying that the law actually makes us painfully aware of these kinds of failings in our lives the ones of ignorance, the high-handed presumptuous ones, and even those areas in our life where we're struggling with expressions of idolatry. Well, the psalm ends on a very positive note and a bit subtle in an Old Testament context, and yet very much an expression of God's work of redemption, which as we read the rest of the Bible, we know, finds its full expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the closing words of this prayer. Let the words of my mouth, the things that come out of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart, those private thoughts that are not expressed in words, let them all, he says, Lord, be acceptable in your sight. So the language that the stars are proclaiming to God's glory, David is saying, I want to be in concert with them. 
both in my thinking and in my speaking, that all of it would be pointing to the glorious uh, creator God. And look what, how he describes this covenant-keeping Lord in the last line of the psalm. Lord, you are my rock and you are my redeemer. What a joy for us who live at this point in the history of redemption. We can look back on God's promises of redemption all through the Old Testament that a deliverer is coming, a Messiah is coming. And indeed, the theme of the Psalms, the five book of the Psalms, five books of the Psalms, that theme of law, which expresses God's expectation, and Messiah, who is coming to redeem us because of our failures to the glory of God, that theme permeates the entire collection of Psalms. And here we see it again. The law shows us our sin, but it leads us to God's redemption. The Lord is our rock. He's our strength. He enables us to live in, in obedience to his revealed law. And yet the Lord is also our redeemer, knowing that we all fail and far, uh, fall short, far short of God's expectations for us. And in that failing, God comes to us in his grace with a means for our sins and failings to be forgiven and for us to be restored into right relationship with our creator. In David's day, they offered those sacrifices yearly in, in a, a looking forward, the shedding of blood of innocent animals, looking forward to the ultimate lamb of God who one day would come and provide the sacrifice once for all, for all people and all of our failings. And that is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to think with me about this psalm and, and the message that it's giving to us. Uh, I've summarized it this way. We actually should treasure our Bibles. Now, we've, we've got more than the Old Testament law now, thank the Lord. But we should treasure our Bibles because this revelation, it shows us our sin. It reveals our sin, but it leads us gloriously to our Savior. We are thankful for all that creation shows us, and yet it's, it's partial. <laughs> We're deeply thankful for the revealed word of God that shows us not only that this God is powerful, but who he is. Einstein said, I want to know his thoughts. God has told us his thoughts, brothers and sisters. And so it's an opportunity for us to think today about our relationship with God expressed through our relationship with his word. Just a couple of notes of how we should respond to this. Uh, first of all, obviously, we should give thanks. Isn't it wonderful where we live in terms of the biblical storyline and the history of redemption that we can look back on all these fulfilled promises of God to us in Christ and knowing that everything that is yet promised to us because of Christ, it's, it's as good as done. It's yes and amen. And every day we have the opportunity to come before this word and be reassured uh, of those promises. We should give thanks for our opportunity to have this wonderful revelation 
in the written word and in the living word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think of so many of, you, many of us just in our smartphones, how many translations of the Bible do we have in our own language? It's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches when you think of former generations and even some people in the world today that have no access to the written word of God in their language. So this is a day that we should give thanks. It's also a season of our lives when we should be reading scripture uh, reflectively, personally, uh, transparently, focusing on listening to the voice of God's spirit to us about our own sins and our own failings. Obviously related to what's going on in our world right now, but uh, with whatever sinful struggle you may be struggling with this uh, with in, in this season of your journey, and if you're not aware of any sinful struggles in your life, I would say lovingly, you might not be paying close enough attention because there's always a, a place as we come to the Word of God and read it that the Spirit of God wants to continue chiseling away in our lives those things that are not Christ-like and to continue to conform us into the image of Christ. Uh, I trust that as you read the Scripture, you're allowing God to shine His light on areas of disobedience in your life. And finally, don't ever become introspective and guilt-ridden and hopeless and in despair because of that awareness of your sin. No, we should allow this to bring us to the foot of the cross, to the feet of our Savior, our risen, reigning Savior, to recognize that our sins are forgiven because of his obedience, because of his righteous life, because of his vicarious atoning death. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, my prayer today is that uh, the scriptures highlighting of your own sin and failings might bring you to rejoice in what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of us as God's people this week Let's take some extra time this week to just thank God for his word, get into it, allow it to speak to us, and always lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ in, in whose obedience we are accepted, by whose death we are made uh, holy, and we are made righteous in God's eyes and accepted in the beloved one himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the riches we have, both in creation, the beauty of your creation, but most importantly, in the revelation of your written word, which has led us to our Savior, the ultimate communication of who you are and what you expect and what you are doing in history. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, if anyone does not know you as Savior, I pray that you would bring them by your grace and through the working of your Spirit and this word, to recognize their need and to rejoice in your provision for that need. And for each of us who know you as Savior, I pray that today and this week in a renewed way, we might appreciate and spend time in your word and coming to worship and rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.